We've been looking at uh, Ephesians 1 for a few weeks, and uh, a few weeks more we'll be in this um, same general area. We're looking at verses 3 through 6 this morning, uh, looking at the love of the Father. We've looked, uh, we've had an overview of verses 3 to 14 a few weeks in a row, and now we're starting to take these in chunks, and these chunks kind of coincide with the three persons of the Trinity. So this week we'll look at the love of the Father, next week the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then the final week, uh, the unity that we have in the Holy Spirit and what that means, his work in our lives, uh, in our salvation. So uh, today, um, in general, not just this morning, but these days, uh, movies and stories and film and, and drama show frequently um, uh, or address the theme frequently, the, the idea of destiny, right? Uh, shows, you turn on the, the television, you watching your favorite show or whatever, and there's, uh, if you're watching a, a series of movies on, or a series of television shows, you know, a lot of times there'll be an episode where really wrestle with uh, the idea of destiny or a movie that really uh, brings out the theme of, um, of our destiny. And, it, you know, the questions ask, is, is the script of our lives already written or do our choices really matter? Do they truly matter? Uh, do we or can we determine our own destiny or not? We as a culture are really obsessed with the question. Uh, you see that a lot in our, uh, if you turn on the TV, right? We really wrestle with this question. We instinctively react to the idea of a predetermined fate. We instinctively react with, um, with despair or revulsion at the idea of a predetermined fate. Uh, it seems unfair to us. It seems arbitrary. It seems like it viola- uh, violates our sense of personal freedom or our sense of autonomy. We suspect that um, if fate isn't some kind of mechanistic thing, if somebody's actually behind a predetermined fate, somebody's actually behind our destiny, then they're probably hostile to us. They're probably uh, controlling, right? They're not respecting our personal choices, and we don't like that idea. We don't like that idea. We resonate with the idea uh, that the poet expresses who writes about the unconquerable soul. He says, I am the master of my own fate. I am the master of my fate. Right? Uh, we resonate with that idea. It's my life. I want the determining word on, uh, on the outcome of my life. And it can seem quite foreign to us that someone would actually celebrate, not just tolerate, but celebrate the idea of predestination. Uh, We would actually find it comforting or reassuring. That seems very foreign to us, but that's the perspective that Paul has here in our passage, and it's the perspective offered to us really everywhere in the Bible. And I'm keenly aware of the fact that this is a highly sensitive issue, a divisive issue for a lot of us, whether, whether you're a Christian or not. You know, this is the kind of thing that could make you not want to be part of what we're doing, right? Uh, make you want to go to church somewhere else or not go to church at all, but, you know, make you want to leave because of uh, the nature of this divisive issue. In fact, if it weren't right there on the page in front of us in black and white, I'd probably be tempted to avoid the topic explicitly, right? So as not to rock the boat, not to make anybody upset, um, It's actually good for us that it is right there on the page in front of us. It's actually good for us. The Bible's full of things that people like us wouldn't write if we were in charge. It's full of things that people like us would never write, like the gospel, um, but that we discover 
to our surprise, uh, that it's actually a source of unending strength and encouragement. Right? And so uh, let's pray and then read what's right there on the page in front of us. Let me pray. <clears throat> Father, we need your help as we consider your word. We always need your help. Um, we think maybe especially we need your help when uh, something so confronts the sense of our own personal rights, our own individual freedoms, uh, our own autonomy from you. We, we pray that you would help us to see how what's right here on the page in front of us is good news for us, that it's about you and your love for us. We pray that you would help us to see it, to accept it, to want more of it, to be changed by it into the likeness of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So Paul's thoughts about God here and uh, about salvation here at the beginning of his letter have a celebratory tone. We've looked at that for a few weeks now. It's, it's, it's doxological, right? Glory words about who God is and what he's done for us in our salvation. It's praise to God. These are not the thoughts of someone who delights in his own autonomy. They're not the thoughts of someone who delights in his own ability to determine his own path in life and make all the decisions about his fate, right? They're not the, the thoughts, the, the delight of someone who um, is autonomous. They're the thoughts of someone who is delighted to submit to God. These are the thoughts of someone who's delighted to submit to God. And those really are the two paths in front of everybody, right? At all times, they're the two paths in front of us. There's, on the one hand, autonomy, self-determination, choosing your own way, getting it your own way, master of your own fate. And on the other hand, um, submission to God, centering on him, living from him and through him and to him. And um, someone on the first path, the path of autonomy, insists on his own rights, insists on his own inviolable freedom. Someone on the path of submission distrusts their wisdom, distrusts their own ability to make decisions, good decisions regarding their life, uh, and trusts in the good care of God as his heavenly father. The autonomous person is concerned with his own rights, he's driven by self-love, and ultimately self-oriented, right? uh, self-referential in all things. The submissive person is concerned with God's will, compelled by true love, is ultimately God-oriented and other-oriented. Right? Love is the, the main feature of that submissive person's life. The autonomous person can't stand the idea of another deciding his fate. The submissive person is thankful that this God, not just any God, this God, this loving Father, has not left him to his own devices, but has supervised, superintended his destiny thankful for that. Having the final say 
about the outcome of your life. You could have that, and literally that's called hell. Having the final say about your existence would literally be hell. It's the supremacy of your own autonomy, where you want to have the final word about your existence. That didn't bother me at all. (laughs) (laughs) Or, on the other hand, God can have the first and the last word, in which case you will be eternally surprised by the goodness of his love, right? the blessing of his love towards you. Several things about this passage can easily offend our sense of autonomy, but are meant to deeply encourage those who call God God and, uh, and don't seek to be God for themselves. Right? If you call God God, this is encouraging. If you want to be God for your, yourself, this can offend you. Right? Several things in this passage. Actually, we'll talk about three, uh, three things from this passage. First, election. It's right there. Second, predestination. And third, actually, um, implicit everywhere in the text, but not so explicit, is the corporate emphasis. The corporate emphasis on salvation. Right? Election, predestination, and the fact that it's just not me. It's not just me. It's us. Now, first is the idea of election, that God the Father says right, right in the text, he chose us from before the foundation of the world. He chose us for salvation. And like Pat, Ro- Pat Roach mentioned a few weeks ago when he uh, covered the overview of this passage, this is the language of love. This is the language that, that God is using, that Paul is using of love. God is a father, and fathers love first, right? Um, with an enduring love, a, a choosing love. It's a deliberate love. It's a particular love. And it's a faithful and reliable and trustworthy love because it comes to us from before the foundation of the world. Right? His love is not fickle. His love is not fleeting. It doesn't flip-flop. That's what we get from this passage. As we read together uh, in our Old Testament reading, Psalm 136, his steadfast love endures forever. That's one of the the primary significances of uh, uh, the fact that uh, he's chosen us in love from before the foundation of the world. From everlasting to everlasting, his love lasts forever, right? From before the foundation of the world to the never end of eternity. His love lasts forever. And there is, this is, we can't, figure out and nail down all the philosophical ins and outs of this conversation. If you want to try to do that more, uh, sorry, we don't have a sermon discussion. You can just ask me after, after church. But there is a distingu- uh, distinguishing feature to this kind of love. There's a distinction-making aspect to this kind of love. If you paid attention as we read Psalm 136 together, which I know it's easy not to pay attention because it's so almost monotonous, right? We're just reciting, for his steadfast love endures forever. Not listening to the in-between bits. We're talking about a God whose steadfast love endures forever, and he's the God who destroys the Egyptian firstborn. He's the God who destroys and kills uh, wicked kings and takes what's theirs and gives it to his people. His steadfast love endures forever. It's It's a kind of love that makes distinction between peoples. It's a kind of love that chooses and, and distinguishes. I can't answer all those questions. It's beyond me, right? 
This is the wisdom and the love, the election of God, whose will is, uh, is, is, is beyond my understanding. Right? It's beyond our understanding. But, uh, but this is the good news for his people about the fact that it's a distinguishing, it's a distinction-making kind of love. Listen to this from Deuteronomy 7. It's actually printed on the front page of the bulletin. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. Holy, again, uh, very basically describing the fact that you're distinct. You're separate. You're brought out. You're not like the -the run-of-the-mill people. You're God's special people. You are people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and who keep his commandments to a thousand generations. The beauty of that passage, it can be... Uh, disconcerting to people who want to imagine that God loves us for who we are, right? He says, he doesn't love you for who you are. He hasn't chosen you. He hasn't made you his special treasured possession because of who you are. You weren't great in number. You're nothing fancy. You're nothing to look twice at. But it's because the Lord loves you, because of his love, because he's a God of love, that he has loved you and chosen you to be a treasured possession for himself. And that's supposed to be encouraging. There are deep purposes here that resist our, our complete understanding, but God has deliberately chosen kind of no big deal kinds of people for his own purposes because he loves you, right? He's chosen uh, people just like you and me. It says in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, Paul writes, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You're not boasting in your own wisdom or strength or power or beauty or nobility or anything like that when you're boasting in God's free choice of you. When you're boasting in his love that's been set on you, you're not boasting in yourself, you're boasting in him. You're excited about him. You're rejoicing in who he is and what he's done when he set his love on you. And the fascinating and wonderful thing about this, about what I just read from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the end of the chapter there, is that uh, he wants to confound people. Right? He wants to confound those who are wise in their own eyes. He wants to confound those who are strong and beautiful and mighty and good and glorious in their own eyes. And, and he wants to take away boasting from them. And he wants to put boasting with another group of people, those who boast in the Lord. And the fascinating thing is he doesn't just, the the plan, the intention from before the foundation of the world is not just to cut everybody down and confuse everybody like what's God doing? He's taken away all of our opportunity for for boasting 
No, uh, he confounds us with his love. And he chooses us. He sets his love on us. He confounds us with his grace. He's still good to us at the end of the day. Just because he says, I don't want you to boast in your own pride, he still gives us uh, what is good in saving us, in giving us Jesus Christ, and in placing us in Christ for a relationship with him, uh, a, a saving relationship with him. His electing love is not based on anything in us, but it's on us. His electing love we have to meet no requirements for it. Nor is he obligated. He is not obligated in any way to love us. He just loves us freely, and he always has. That's what the text says. That's what the whole Bible says. He just loves us. That's who he is, and he's always loved us. That's what kind of God he is because he's Father, right? He is the Father. And that should give us great confidence in our relationship with him, For example, Jesus taught us to pray to God as our Father, not assuming that we irritate him, that he'd rather not be bothered by pitiful little people like us. We're not to assume that. We're to assume that he loves to hear from his children. He's a better father than we are, and a lot of times we like to hear from our children. He's a better father than we are. He loves to hear from us, and we should... uh, We should let that shape the atmosphere in which we pray to him as Father Jesus tells us. God himself, the Father who loves you with an eternal love, a steadfast love that never fails and never ceases, that never ends, he has taught you throughout the scriptures to express yourself to him. Think of the Psalms, whether you're expressing love or longing or pain or fear, or anger, or doubt, his steadfast love endures forever, and it is solid ground for your relationship with him. It is solid ground. He loves you. He wants to hear from you. So pray to him as a father. Then there's the slightly different idea here, the second idea that Paul writes about, predestination. Election and predestination are not identical things, right? Uh, Predestination is also offensive to the autonomous person, the person concerned with his own rights and his ability to to master his own fate and choose his own way in life. But it is also strength for the submissive that God, the Father, has deliberately decided the trajectory and the ultimate outcome of the lives of his people. That's what it says. He has set you on your path, and he has left nothing to chance. And that can be encouraging to us. God stands at the beginning of all things. He works all things according to the pleasure of his will. He, his is the purposeful, gracious initiative that ensures our life with him. He has predestined us for adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ, what the text says. Eugene Peterson has a great illustration of this. Uh, he was in an airport in Greece, and as we all know, uh, Greek is the original language of the New Testament, right? It's all, if you peel back uh, behind the translation, behind the English translation stands a Greek um, original. And so Eugene Peterson was in Greece, he was in the airport, and he's going to Rome, and he sees over the gate, he sees the Greek word for predestination, Rome, right? Destination Rome. It's the, it's the word from this passage. Destination Rome. It's like walking to the gate, and seeing that above it, once you're on that airplane, you've got a course, you're going to end up in Rome, right? generally speaking. 
once you get on that plane, you are predestined. Your destination is set. You're going to end up in Rome. And the, the Father has set you on a course. He's chosen you, and he's set you on a course. And that course, that destination, is adoption as sons. Adoption as sons. Right? Um, the word there that uh, comes from the passage, adoption as sons, it does, it's one, one Greek word, adoption as sons. It doesn't just mean adoption. Some of the translations will just say adoption. It means adoption as sons. It's very specific. And at first it might seem like an example of a kind of gender-biased language. You know, oh, could say sons and daughters. It uh, doesn't say that. The Bible's um, probably misogynistic because it doesn't say sons and daughters. It, it's... It's actually quite the opposite. It's actually amazingly gender-inclusive, that it's being applied to all Christians, both men and women, that we're predestined for adoption as sons. Because in the ancient world, only sons had a right to the inheritance, to the family inheritance. Only sons had the right. Sometimes a man would have no legal heir, no son. He could have daughters, but no legal heir because he didn't have a son. And so he would adopt someone to be his son. A lot of times people would adopt a faithful slave to be their son so that somebody uh, would be an heir, so that that person would have rights to the inheritance. In Christianity, men and women both, men and women, are adopted equally into God's family as sons, as those who have the rights of inheritance. All the blessings of salvation. This language also reflects the incredibly unique privilege of a specific kind of relationship that is ours through Jesus Christ, that's available to us through our union with him. Jesus Christ is himself the one and only begotten son, the unique son of God. And we are not just granted to be sort of second-class children, second-class sons and daughters of God, but we're granted his very relationship, his, the, the relationship of the son to the Father is granted to us. It's a relationship of pure, delightful, mutual love that's existed forever, and we're brought right into it. We're caught up into it. Whatever is true of Jesus Christ, because of our personal union with him, because of our faith, because of his spirit who lives in us, who's united us to him, whatever is true of Jesus Christ as the beloved Son of God is true of us because we're, our salvation is our adoption into his place in the relationships of the triune God. This is all a free gift of his grace. The perfect son went to great lengths to um, ensure this salvation, ensure this predestination, to, to ensure adoption as sons for you and for me. The son of God himself was disowned at the cross so that we sinners who don't deserve it might be adopted as sons and received into God's family. That's the destination for which the father has predestined us. Adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. And um, he's done it deliberately. That, that kind of deliberate language is everywhere, not just here in these few verses, but throughout this whole passage. Very deliberate language, according to the purpose of his own will, according to the pleasure of his will. Right. So the purpose or pleasure, that has a warm personal connotation to it, and will has this emphasis on his active resolve, his plan. Right? It's very deliberate and the Father's excited about his plan to do good to his chosen people. He's excited about his plan. The one who insists, 
on complaining about predestination, I think doesn't quite apprehend the goodness of God's will, the pleasure of his will, the good purpose of his will. It should cause us no end uh, in wondering and in gratitude. J.I. Packer has a book that uh, probably a lot of you are familiar with called Knowing God. He says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child, of having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means he doesn't understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish, is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. That's the relationship that we're brought into. And so it should be good news to us that uh, that relationship has been planned and laid out and uh, no deviation allowed for people who are deviants like us. Right? Um, finally, there's the corporate emphasis. The corporate emphasis of salvation here. The idea that in the Father's plan, the individual, you as an individual, you're just not supreme. Right? The individual is not supreme. Ours is a shared salvation, a salvation in the church, a salvation into the church, that we're brought into a family where love of other really is the ultimate reality. Love of other is the ultimate reality, not the supremacy of self. Right? There's corporate language throughout this passage. You get words like our, us, we, six times in just a couple verses. A Christian is not a spiritual lone ranger, right? Christian is not uh, just a, an autonomous individual. Normally, you can't even become a Christian without other Christians. That is normal, right? Let alone growing as a Christian in the likeness of Jesus Christ. It just doesn't happen unless you're part of this group called the church. That's what we're talking about in Todd Bolsinger's book in our home group. It takes a church to raise a Christian. It's not just Jesus and me, right? Salvation is not just me and him. It's all of us in this thing together. Now you can look around right now. You can take a minute to look around uh, and see all the other messed up people in here. And somewhere in the back of your mind or in your, in your feelings, you probably think that uh, they'll probably contaminate you. You could probably kind of work out for yourself. You could achieve some kind of a better uh, truer spirituality apart from them, maybe in your own private devotions. It leads people to think that, you know, I just don't have to go to church to have a real relationship with God. Maybe instead you should be afraid of contaminating others in, uh, in the church. Right? Maybe you feel like the corporate emphasis on salvation, it threatens to dissolve your identity as an individual. Being part of this corporate church threatens to dissolve your identity as an individual. Maybe you feel that way. Maybe it's like being assimilated into the Borg Collective. You lose all distinctiveness, right? Um, maybe I think it's easy for us to feel afraid that we lose our individuality when we become part of the church. But God's reality, the reality of the triune God, 
Again, not just any God, but this God, the one God who exists in three persons in perfect communion, the reality there is that relationship does not annihilate personal identity. It establishes it. Relationship in God's life doesn't annihilate personal identity. It establishes it. The father wouldn't be a father without the son. Who knows what he'd be? You wouldn't be a father if he didn't have a son. Right? In a sense, he needs the other to be who he is. That's what, that's what establishes his identity, establishes his personhood as father, is the, the presence, the existence, and the love of his son. Right? The son, vice versa, wouldn't be the son without the father. The father is in the son, the son is in the father, and they are one. This is all biblical language. Right? They are one God, one God. And this closeness, this intimacy doesn't annihilate their personal identity. It gives definition to each of the persons. It establishes their their, um, individual identities. Each finds his identity in the relationship to the other. That's what kind of God we have. And because this is the, the, the one God who has created us, who's made everything in this world, from whom all reality comes, and this is the God who saves us for a relationship with himself, this is how our world works. This is how our relationships work. This is how we're meant to work. Right? This is how it's meant to be. The self-absorbed, self-aggrandizing, self-exalting, self is no self. If you're just by yourself, you're not a self. You find your true self not in autonomy, not in individualism. You find your true self not in self-centeredness, but in relationship to God and to others. That's what we were made for in the image of the triune God. You are a distinct person, but you would not be the distinct person that you are unless you were in relationships with the people who are in your life. And your distinctiveness as a person affects them as you're in their lives. We need each other. We need to be in each other's lives to become the people that we were meant to be, to become the distinct persons and have the identities that we were meant to have. Peter Lighthart has a great book uh, that just came out a little while ago called Traces of the Trinity. One of the things that he talks about in this book is is this. "The, The things that make me me didn't come from me. The things that make me me didn't come from me. I am what I am because others have poured themselves into me. You know that's true. You can see it with small children, with babies, right? They're, they're formed by being in the community of their families, in a community with other people, right? Um, and spiritual formation is a collective pursuit. Life with God, life as an adopted son of God, among the sons of God means that we open our lives up to God and to each other and we allow ourselves to be shaped by each other and by God and we allow ourselves to be established in personal identity. We become who we were meant to be in this community with God and with the, and with the church. We give ourselves to others in love and thereby uh, we all become true persons. True persons, the corporate emphasis of our salvation. What kind of God can do this with self-centered people like us? Because we are fundamentally, by nature now, as sinners, 
self-centered. He deliberately plunks us down in the middle of his chosen people. Emphasis on deliberately and plunks and chosen and people. Emphasis on ultimately love. That's the whole point of all of this. The emphasis is ultimately on love. It says in verse 4, he does this so that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. <clears throat> the translation here is not perfect because of the, the placing of this, this period. Uh, right here at the end of verse 4, it says that we should be holy and blameless before him, period. In love he predestined us, and so on. It, uh, it's all one sentence in the Greek, and that period should be a comma. That period should be a comma. It should be uh, that, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. Um, he makes it so that when we are on destination adoption as sons, that we would bear the family resemblance. That's the, that's the outcome. That's the, that's the uh, result of our salvation. Like father, like son. You shall be holy, for I am holy, he says. And what holiness looks like, according to his law, everywhere in the scriptures, what real holiness looks like in our lives is love. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. That we should be holy and blameless in love means that we would be like, like father, like son. We become more Christ-like. We become more like the perfect son when we grow in that, um, that ultimate goal for our lives, the, the, um, the result of our salvation. You're not in this for yourself. That's what that means. That you would be holy and blameless in love, that you would be father, like father, like son, that would characterize your life with God and with his people, means that you're not in this for yourself. You are in this to give yourself to others. That's what love is. That's what God is like, the one who is love, and he is holy and blameless in love, and we're being made more like him. Some say that that's a terrifying prospect, <clears throat> that, that kind of love I'm not in this for myself. I'm in, I'm in this to give myself to others, even as Jesus Christ gave himself. When you think about it, that can be terrifying, that the love of God is so great, the love of God is so otherworldly, it's so unlike our regular experience that it would propel Jesus Christ into the world where he would meet his bloody death for the sake of love. That's frightening. That's a frightening prospect. Jesus the Son suffered what he did not deserve. He suffered what he did not deserve so that we wouldn't have to suffer what we do deserve under God's wrath. He suffered what he did not deserve in love so that we who do deserve it wouldn't have to suffer separation from God. And he did it to make us like him, which means now that we would be sons who would be willing to suffer for others what we don't deserve. We don't deserve our suffering a lot of times in this world, but we're willing to suffer what we don't deserve for the sake of love. So you are like Jesus, the true son. You bear the family resemblance. That's what this passage is about. You bear the family resemblance in holiness and blamelessness in love every time you really forgive someone who really hurt you. You bear the family resemblance. Every time you put generosity or service 
before your own concerns, before your own comforts. Every time you risk rejection to confront someone and speak the truth in love, you're willing to suffer what you don't deserve. Every time you assume the best about others in church and stay committed to them in a church full of broken people, there's going to be suffering. And it's suffering you don't deserve, and it's suffering that you're made willing to suffer, just as Jesus suffered, the perfect son who is like the Father in his holiness and blamelessness and love. Only this God, only this Father, only a relationship with him can take autonomy-seeking individuals, save us from ourselves, and plug us into a love like this. It's an eternal love that never fails to the praise of his glorious grace. Amen. Let's pray. Father, your love is amazing. Your love is frightening. Your love makes demands on each and every one of us. Your love demands a response. Help us to respond to your love with faith, with trust. Help us to be encouraged by your love, this this electing and predestinating love that uh, is beyond our finding out, beyond our comprehension. This love is great, and it has endured from before the foundation of the world, and it will endure into all eternity. And we are grateful to be part of it, to know that you, our Father, have blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ because of your grace. You have lavished grace upon grace on us. And we want to know your grace and your love more intimately. We pray that you would teach us now more about it as we continue in worship and through communion. We pray that you would teach us always what it means that you are a Father who loves us, that that is who you are, and what effect that that good news should have in our lives and in all of our relationships as we become more like you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.